we're talking about light this morning. We're talking about Jesus as the light of the world as we continue in a study on the I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. This week we're going to talk about when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Those who walk in my path follow a a path of life. Um, But it's everything that happens before that statement uh, that can really help us understand the power of that statement. Because if you're like me, you like the idea of Jesus lighting the way, of Jesus being a light in our life. But the gravity of what that means is revealed when we read everything that leads up to it. Found in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. If you've got a Bible with you, you've got a Bible on your app, you want to follow along, feel free to open up to John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Before we dig in, let's pray and invite God into this moment. God, as we prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls for you, to receive you again this morning, to receive you through the story of a temple and a woman and some religious leaders who've gotten it very wrong and a savior who is a light of grace. We prepare to hear a story that many of us have heard many times before. God, I would ask that you would breathe new life into the story for those of us who are familiar with it, that you would make it jump off the screens to those who've never heard it before, that you would take these words out of our scriptures and place them into our hearts. All this we pray in the name of the one who lights our way, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen says this beginning in verse 2. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, placing her in the center of the group. They said to Jesus, teacher, all snarky like, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us, to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and he replied, whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Or those who heard, who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders, until finally only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? And she said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, don't sin anymore. Jesus spoke to the people again who were gathered there saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a book called Good Faith by two guys named 
David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. And, and the, what the book is about, it's, it's them trying to um, help us understand what it means to be faithful Christians who live in a specifically American culture and context that is increasingly seeing, uh, that increasingly sees religion generally and Christianity most specifically as being either um, extreme or irrelevant. This is, this is the point of their book, is how do we live as a faithful Christian community in that space? And David Kinneman, one of those two authors, he's, he's a researcher. He's a very well-respected bearer of hard truth statistics about church and really what people in our American culture think of church and Christians, um, especially as our American culture gets less and less religious every year. In this book, David Kinneman tells us, get this, guys, that now, of all the thousands of people they've surveyed, more than two out of five people, over 40% of people they've surveyed, said that when it comes to the problems facing our American culture today, that religion and people of faith, the words that they use in the survey, two out of five people, more than 40%, said that religion and people of faith are part of the problem, not the solution. That's a big number, over 40%. And I imagine that number is only going to go up year after year after year as we continue to live in a culture that, that, that continues to take a more cynical eye towards people of faith and religious organizations. And that statistic ought to give those of us who are still in love with the church, who are still participants in the church, who are still bearers of the Christian faith, it ought to make us pause and reflect for a second. Because more than two out of five, that's a lot of people. We ought to be asking ourselves, what do we do when religion seems to go bad? What do we do when our religion seems to go bad? I think that religion had gone bad by the time that Jesus made it into that temple in his ministry in the land of Israel. And he finds himself confronted by religious leaders who bear heavy stones and heavier hearts who are trying to corner him, who are trying to pin him in this legalistic argument. And yet, out of this experience, they are the ones who find themselves convicted by the power and grace of Jesus, this man they thought they had trapped. So Jesus is teaching in the temple and a group of, it says, Pharisees and, and religious leaders. These are the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are the people who are in charge of enforcing the religious law of the Jewish people, the law of Moses, as they call it. And they approach him with the woman whom they, they claim they've just caught in the act of adultery. They drag her into the middle of the temple, a very crowded space. And they ask him pointedly, what do you say? See, what they're, they're doing is they're couching this question at, for Jesus in the larger conversation of the law of Moses, which does actually take a very hard-line stance. This is from the, the books of De Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It takes a very hard-line stance against adultery, and it even calls for the death penalty in many cases. But here's the interesting thing, is that if they had bothered to actually read the laws that they're supposedly citing, they would know a couple of things. Number one, where's the guy? It's kind of hard to have an affair on your own, amen? Right, and here's the crazier thing. Not only where is the guy, the whole reason the law exists is because in those days that the laws were written, that law around adultery was written specifically to protect a man's assets and estate to make sure that they went to his wife and his children in the event that he had an affair. 
It's not about the woman who he had an affair with. It's all about the guy and his mistake. And yet, guess what? Where's the guy? So these religious legalists, these, these legal experts, they've not only missed the spirit of the law, they've missed the letter of it too. So much for being legal experts. They're actually really bad lawyers. You don't want to hire these guys. And maybe that's why Jesus ignores them at first. It's one of the funnier scenes in the Bible, especially if you understand the context in which it was written. You know, Jesus is hearing them, you know, hit him with these questions, and what does he do? Mm-hmm, yeah. He just starts digging in the dirt, playing, writing. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of scholars, a lot of people will go, oh, I wonder what he was writing. You know, there's all this speculation. What was he writing in the dirt? Well, guess what? If it was really that important... I think the author of the Gospel of John might have included that part in the story. That's not the important part. It's not like, what did he write? Was it like a dirty word? Or was it like, did he draw a picture of a fish or something? None of that matters. Here's what matters. You've got these legal experts cornering you in the temple. Everyone's watching. They are, I mean, can, you know when you feel like you're about to get somebody? You're going to confront them? Ooh, and you're ready. Ooh. You're, you feel like you're in the boxing corner, right? And the coach is rubbing your shoulder. Oh, I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them. And then you go and confront them. And what do they do? Yeah, hold on one sec. Anyone uncomfortable yet? It's weird. It's awkward. In fact, it would have been kind of funny to those watching. Like, he's just ignoring these guys. What do we know about negative people? Do they like to be ignored? Do you know any negative people that love to be ignored? I know exactly zero negative people that like to be ignored. So what do they do? They keep asking him, keep asking him, keep asking him, until finally he just goes, okay. He stands up, and he answers, not the question they asked, but a different question entirely. What he does is he asks them to think theologically about this question that they posed to him. His response is, is sort of a total left turn. It's totally unexpected. He says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Wow. That's not what they thought they were going to hear. Slowly, they each walk away, beginning with the elders, the most important people in the temple. They start, they walk away until finally, it's just Jesus and the woman in the middle of the crowd. And this exchange teaches me a couple of things, specifically about how religion, even when it started with the best of intentions, can go bad. I mean, the, the, the faith of our ancestors in the Old Testament was started faithfully. It had the best of intentions, you go back and read the faith of Noah and the faith of Abraham, the faith of Moses. This, this was a faith born out of good intentions. And yet by the time it got to the temple and this woman and Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and a woman was about to be stoned to death in the house of God. Would you say religion gone a little bad by then? Teaches me a couple things about how religion goes bad. Maybe you see this today like I do. First thing I see, religion goes bad when punishing rule breakers becomes more important than loving people into better behavior. Have you experienced this before? Crosswalk. Somebody say amen. We are so quiet this morning. Religion goes bad when we care more about punishing rule breakers than loving people into better behavior. Now, let me say this. I like rules. I say this as someone who likes rules. You would know that if you've ever played a game, a board game with me. Rules make it fun, right? 
You, know, you have a, a rule meister in your family, you know, where they've got the whole thing. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You know, I, 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 I don't invite me. I'm not fun. I'm not a fun guy. I like the rules. Um, I love rules. I think that faith needs rules at times. I think it's important that faith, you understand what are your boundaries? What are, what are your guidelines? What are, what's your guide of life? You know, what is considered holy in your, in your brand of belief? I think that's important. I think that a faith that doesn't have any boundaries or a faith that doesn't have any rule of life, any guide to living is kind of shallow and naive, especially a Christian faith when we consider the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, when you read the Gospels, really seems to care about our actions. You know, someone asks him one time, how do you get into heaven? He doesn't say, well, by having the perfect doctrine. No, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you gave me clothes to wear. When I was homeless, you gave me a home. Jesus cares about our actions deeply. So if we want to pretend like religion should have no rules and no boundaries, well, that's not the Christian faith. But as important as having some rules is, I think it is just as, if not more important, to understand how we handle, how we deal with, how we guide people who break rules, how we handle ourselves when we break rules. How we respond to rule breaking might be even more important than having rules in the first place. Rules in the life of faith exist to show us what holy living looks like. They, they exist to guide our hearts and our steps and our thoughts and our actions in a way that leads to life and leads to glory for God. Enforcing those rules ought to redirect us in a loving way back towards holiness when we stray. This is where the Pharisees fail to understand the Levitical law. They totally miss the point. If the Pharisees had stoned the adulterous woman in, the, in that temple that day, would that have made her less adulterous, church? No. It would have made her less alive. Is that the purpose of the law? Jesus says no. In response to this Jesus shows us that if we truly believe in holy living, we ought to love people into that path, not punish them into it. Has anyone ever tried to punish you into holier living? Did it feel good? Did it work? Did it make you love the Lord so much more? Thank you for the punishment. No. Has anyone ever loved you into a better path? Have you ever been loved into being less angry? or loved into being more forgiving, or loved into being more gracious, or loved being more generous, loved being more grateful? What, have you ever experienced that before? There's a second way that I see religion going bad in this story. Religion goes bad when it becomes a tool for our own power and glory rather than God's. Ooh, now I'm going to start stepping on some toes in the area. I gotta be careful now. Pharisees drag in this woman, they humiliate her. They bring her into the middle of an enormous crowd. They threaten her life with a brutal execution, and for what? Because they were just so passionate about the sanctity of marriage? I don't think so. I don't think they had anything to do with it. You know, I think they cared about it. I think they wanted to score some points against Jesus. I think they wanted to flex their muscles and show the people in the temple who was still in charge. I think they wanted to knock this would-be Messiah that they saw down a peg. And they were willing to use this woman and use God's temple and use the law of Moses as a weapon 
and it backfired. I think this is possibly the biggest reason that people in America increasingly view Christianity as a problem. Because what they don't see is humble servants of Christ following in Jesus' footsteps, trying to express love and grace and mercy to the world around them. They don't see that. If they did, we wouldn't have a two out of five statistic. What they see is loudmouth leaders wielding the Bible like a weapon. And guess what? Is that very attractive? No, it's not. In the church world, we would say that is, an, that is not an effective evangelism strategy. Yeah? There's some big steeples with big leaders that use the Bible as a big old weapon, but guess what's bigger? Starbucks, the NFL pregame show. We convince ourselves that that's the way to grow a church. Well, guess what? The American population is rejecting that idea more and more as each generation passes. If you read the Bible for even five minutes, I challenge you, open to any page and read it for five minutes, I guarantee that you will find pretty clear, pretty quickly, that the Christian faith does not exist for my glory and power, for your glory and power, for our glory and power. It exists for nobody's glory and power except for whose? God's. How easy it is to forget this. I firmly believe that when we try to use our faith to build up our own power and our own glory, we will be brought exposed in the end, not unlike the Pharisees in the temple. We can either approach our God humbly or we can leave our God humbled. Either way, we will be humbled in the, in the end. I think that's what maybe is happening in the American church right now is that we're being made humble again. And I think that's probably a good thing. Do you think humility might be good for the Christian church? I do. That's why I'm not scared of this new era. I think it might be the, most, the biggest blessing we could ever receive. So what do we do when, we're, when we face a religion, even our own religion, that has gone bad? Do we throw it away? Do we toss it aside? I really hope not, because I spent a lot of time in seminary and getting ordained. That was a mistake. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. Let's look at what Jesus does next. After everyone has left, it's just him and this woman in the middle of the crowd. I mean, she's probably still shaking from this experience. She almost, she was moments away from death. He asks her this poignant question, is there no one to condemn you? Is there no one to condemn you? And she looks up at him, and you can almost hear her voice trembling. No one, sir. No one. <laughs> Neither do I condemn you, he says. Have you ever experienced that grace of God before? Has Jesus' word cleared the room of the haters in your life before? to where he could look you in the eye and say, where are they? Does anyone here condemn you? Neither do I. That's a gracious word. And he didn't stop talking. Then he issues a challenge. Go, he says, and sin no more. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, why'd you do that? I was feeling so good. I was enjoying that grace. I got goosebumps. It was so good. 
And then you told me I had to live perfect. What? Like, I want to be snarky. Like, thanks so much, Jesus. I really don't feel condemned. All I have to do now is be perfect the rest of my life. Fantastic. For the longest time, maybe you're like me, I, I, I really struggled with that challenge because I just wanted him to have stopped right before. Because I just felt like, what an impossible task. Go and sin no more. How in the world am I ever going to live up to that, Jesus? But more recently, I've begun to see that challenge a little differently. I want to tell you why. See, Jesus has already established some things in this story. He's established that he doesn't punish for punishment's sake. He's not in the punishment game. He's established that he leans heavily on the side of grace and mercy. And he's already told this woman that his job is not to condemn, but to give life. And if I take all of those truths, and then I look at this challenge through that lens, it changes the challenge for me. No longer do I see this as Jesus asking me to do the impossible, but I see it as Christ revealing to me that now through him, the impossible is possible. We just sang about that. Do y'all believe that? No longer is this an impossible task. Now the impossible is possible. What if we embraced the impossible being possible through Christ? What if we embraced this was not a condemning statement, not an impossible task before us? What if we embraced that this was actually Jesus saying that better is possible? Does anyone in here need your life to be better? Do you need your heart to be better? Do you need your soul to be better? Do you need to know that things can improve? Does anyone else need to know that or just me? Y'all must be living your perfect life. That's great. Anybody else need your life to improve? In any way, say amen. amen. Jesus says that's possible. Can we embrace that holiness is not a rule waiting to be broken, but rather something worth striving for even in the face of failure? I wake up a lot of mornings not feeling very holy, and then I get in the car and get on the highway, and I'm even less holy, let me tell you. I need to know that Scott can get better. Of course, the natural question we arrive at, so we accept this great, is, okay, I can be better. The impossible is possible. I can strive for holiness. How do I do that? How do I do that? Because Jesus has just totally flipped on its head every assumption that we had. See, when he walks in the temple, he's encountering people, the Pharisees, the woman, the crowd. He's encountering people who rely on the law of Moses to instruct them to holy living. And Jesus just turned that on its head. He made us question the letter of the law and embrace the spirit of the law. But now that we don't necessarily always follow the letter of the law, well, what, what do we do? He does something really cool here, and I I want us to sort of experience it. So let's bring the lights down a little bit, and let's make sure that we leave the the light on our interpreter this morning. Perfect. So Jesus in the temple, when he confronts the Pharisees and says, "Let let he without sin cast the first stone, he does this. He puts us all in equal playing field. He says, all of us, everyone is walking in darkness. I don't care what salary you make. I don't care where your office is. I don't care how big your house is. I don't care how many goats you just sacrificed last week. Everybody's walking in darkness. Now, here's the problem is you might say, okay, cool. We're all on equal playing field. We're all, we're all side by side. But right now, if I told you, and you know, pretend the spotlight's not there. If I told you, find your way out of the room. Imagine you're in a pitch black room. And I said, find your way out. 
That'd be hard, wouldn't it? What would happen? Bump into chairs, bump into people, bump into the wall. That's when you know you're in trouble. (laughs) By the time you get out the doors, you'd be so beaten and bloodied and bruised. And maybe that's what you've experienced in your life before. But then Jesus says something crazy. As we're sitting in this darkness, he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who walks in my path walks in the path of life. Now if I tell you how to get out of the room, what's the first place you're going to go? Better yet, what if I brought this light to you and I offered to show you the way out? Would you follow me? I hope so. We can bring the lights back up. That's exactly what Jesus does for us in this text. Do you understand the power of these words now? It's not just him saying, I'm here to shine a light and make us all feel good. He's saying, all of us are in darkness. The most expert theologians among us, the people who go to temple every day, the people who sacrifice goats and cattle that don't care how rich you are, how great you think you are, we're all in darkness, but I am the light of the world, and if you follow me, you'll find the path of life. God knows that he needs to make an impossible task possible for us. He knows that we need something beyond ourselves to guide us into holier living, to guide us in a way of living that leads us to life. He knows that what we need is no longer a written law, but a living one. He knows that if we want to have any hope in this world, we need to be in relationship with God in flesh, his son, Jesus Christ. And when Christ's light begins to live in us, not only will we begin to experience holier lives, life-giving lives, lives that bring honor and glory to God, not only will we have that for ourselves, it will pour out of us. That's the funny thing about light. It doesn't like being trapped. It'll spill out of us in the world around us, a world that needs desperately to see something good. Let me tell you, when you shine light into darkness, you notice it. And I want to Close today with two stories about two institutions here in Dallas that I think shine a light into the world around them. The first one is Parkland Hospital. Anyone here work for Parkland, out of curiosity? My mom does. She's worked for Parkland for over 20 years as, an, as a registered nurse and an IT analyst. And so we have a special love uh, for our county hospital and my family uh, particularly. Now, maybe you've never been to Parkland, You don't work for Parkland, but I bet you know that Parkland is a busy place. Yeah, that's an understatement, by the way. You want to hear some crazy numbers for a second? Here's Parkland by the numbers. In 2017 alone, they had over a million outpatients come through their doors. Gee, that's what we all should have said. Whoa, what? Over a million outpatients. They performed over 20,000 surgeries. They saw and attended to 250,000 ER visits. And they birthed over 12,000 babies to boot. (laughs) That's a lot of babies. Parkland is busy. But not so busy that they can't notice something in need that could be easily overlooked. So I learned this past week that Parkland participates in a program called No One Dies Alone. Have you heard of this program? 
It was started in Oregon back in 2001 by a nurse named Sandra Clark who uh, had a patient, an experience with a patient that changed her life. She had a patient who was dying, and she realized that this patient had no friends and no family to sit with them while they passed. And so she sat with this patient for their last hours until their last breath. And that made an incredible impact on her life. And, and she realized that this patient wasn't the only one. There were patients like them all over Oregon and all over the country. And so she started a program called No One Dies Alone. And that program has exploded. And it's on hospital campuses throughout the country, one of which is Parkland. And the way it works is it, normally it's run through the chaplaincy office. And, and they get volunteers from the outside to come in and sit with patients who are dying for their final hours until their final breath. Parkland, though, does it a little bit differently. I want to. I want to talk about that for a second. They most other most other hospitals they, they get volunteers from the outside community, but Parkland is a teaching hospital. That is in their DNA. It's in everything they do. They're a teaching hospital. And so they they don't get volunteers from the community. It's still run through the chaplain's office, but their volunteers are the med students. Now you talk about busy. I mean, seminary was busy, but I got nothing on med students. You heard the numbers I quoted earlier about Parkland. Imagine what it's like to be a med student at Parkland Hospital. And what do they do? They give up four hours of their time at a time. They sign up for four-hour blocks to go and sit with patients who have no one else to sit with them, many of whom are homeless. Now, you tell me if that doesn't shine a light. I would dare say the light of Christ into the community of Dallas. You tell me that doesn't shine a light into one of the darkest times that no one should have to face alone. You tell me if that doesn't make these med students such superior doctors and medical professionals in the end. The the respect that Parkland has for life and the way they witness to that by by including a program like No One Dies Alone. I mean, they testify to the church, I think. They shine a light into our community. The other institution I want to talk about this morning is actually our own. It's Lover's Lane. And I can brag on this church because before I was a pastor at this church, I was a member of this church. And in many ways, this church saved my life, my faith, when I had experienced religion gone bad earlier in my life. I know that's a similar experience for many of us in the room today. In fact, Crosswalk, in many ways, saved my faith. I came to this church a little over seven years ago. I was really nervous because I was meeting a senior pastor of a big church that I didn't know, and his name was Stan. And I was so terrified to walk into his office. And that day was full of surprises for me. First surprise was driving over here. I'm from the mid-cities. I'm from, you know, suburbia of suburbia, you know, from Euless, Texas. And driving over here, I'm driving by the homes, by the church. I'm going, my home could fit inside these homes. What is happening? Where am I? That was my first surprise. Also became keenly aware of the squeaky belt on my 93 New Yorker that day. Um, My second surprise was when I walked through the doors of this church in a very wealthy part of the town and I saw missions and outreach just everywhere on the walls. I saw this commitment to missions and outreach and helping the community and helping the world, and I was surprised. And then I was surprised by seeing the pictures, the faces of who made up this community of faith, how diverse we were in Preston Hollow of all places. It shouldn't work, but it does. 
And my last surprise was a boots-wearing East Texas accent-having pastor named Stan who called me Scotty. <laughs> hey there, Scotty! I said, in my head I'm thinking, my name's Scott, but you can call me whatever you want if you give me a job. <laughs> a lot of surprises that day. And I knew something about Stan was different. I knew something about this church was different. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of it desperately. I wanted to see what God was doing through this church and through its leader. And what I've discovered in my more than seven years of working and worshiping at Lover's Lane is that this place is the right kind of weird. I would say this is religion gone right at Lover's Lane. And I think a lot of that has to do with our senior pastor. If it sounds like I'm bragging on him, no, I'm not like in trouble with him. You're like, Scott, why are you talking so good about Stan? Are you in trouble or something? No. Today we're celebrating, uh, this month he celebrated his 20th anniversary of ministry here at Lover's Lane. He actually started on April 1st, no joke. <laughs> and today we're going to be celebrating his 20th anniversary after worship. And when he arrived here, he arrived to a congregation that was in a difficult spot. They'd been through some pain. And they needed a preacher who had a pastor's heart. And even more than that, they needed a visionary who could show them what it meant to be a church that embraced loving all people. And that's exactly what Stan brought to the table. When Stan arrived, we worshipped in one worship venue, the sanctuary, in one style of worship, traditional. And really, we had kind of one type of person that came to church, if we're being honest. And 20 years later, we worshipped in five different places, in eight different styles of worship, in at least half a dozen languages, as far as I can tell, every Sunday. And we're able to do that because we are partners in one common mission that we say is loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's a mission that we helped, that we were able to help be helped to find, understands leadership. And that's a mission statement that has shined a light into the darkness and has reached people who desperately needed to hear the words, does no one condemn you? Then neither do we. As an example of the intersections of life this past week, I found myself at Parkland Hospital on a pastoral visit. So my worlds were colliding. And I was visiting a, a, a woman named Odette. She's the mother of uh, some students that I've gotten to know through our student ministry, uh, Thierry and Cadet. And their family is, is from uh, Uganda, Democratic Republic of Congo, that area. Um, and they came here through Rwanda a few years back. I've gotten to know them over the last few years. And Odette was in the hospital. And she's home now and she's good. Parkland took great care of her. But when I went, I went to, to pray with her, as we normally do, as pastors do. We pray for our members in the hospital. And the um, problem is Odette speaks very, very, very broken English. And, and we know this, you know, I've, I, when I've picked up her kids from the apartment before, you know, um, you know, we'll do the smile and the high, and if she gets a high out, and we, okay, we're just smiling and nodding, and then I go, you know, it's, it's wonderfully, uh, you know, awkward and beautiful, you know. And so I walk in, and, I'm, and, and, and her husband's not there, and I'm thinking, oh, geez, okay, I, I'm going to pray, but she's going to have no idea what I'm saying and it's still good, it's still good, but I mean, I, I want this to be meaningful. But luckily, she was on the phone with her husband at the time. And, and Francis and I know each other well, and so I said, oh, give me the phone. I said, hey, Francis, I'm going to pray. Can I put you on speaker, and you can translate for us? So then I'm holding Odette's hand, and then we're both touching the speaker phone, and I'm praying, and he's translating, and then he's translating back for me. And it's, I mean, that was a first, right? I'd never done that in the hospital before. I'm sure the nurse walked in like, what is happening in here right now? 
And, and that's the whole story. It's not a big grand story. Um, it's a simple story. Um, but there's thousands of those stories at this church. Because I, I think what, what our church has done, maybe one of the most powerful things it's done is it's made a space where all of God's children feel welcome, where we can have intersections with people that we would never otherwise meet. This past week, I got to pray with Odette. I never would have known Odette if it had not been for this church. And and this church wouldn't have been the space that it is if it hadn't been for Stan's leadership. So I'm thankful personally for Stan's leadership in my life because he has created intersections for me with people that I'm so thankful to know that I wouldn't if it hadn't been for his faith and his following of God. And Stan will be the first one to say, and he'll say this at his party later, that he's third on the list, that, that the Holy Spirit has done everything through this church. Holy Spirit's number one, and he would be careful to say that this church is number two. It's you, the congregation, who have embraced this vision. But today, we're going to honor number three. <laughs> we're going to honor Stan. And after worship today, we're, we're going to gather out at the Serenity House. I hope that all of you can attend. I'm going to be there. Kenan's going to be there. Dee will be there. I hope that we can all come. And maybe Stan hasn't personally been your pastor because it's a big church. Maybe you've never been in his office. Um, but Stan has been your pastor because he had a vision for starting something like Crosswalk back in 2001. He had a vision for a church that would love all people in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we're going to tell Stan thank you 